I say to you as well, it is my first time in Savannah. I have never been in this wonderful place, but you are the reason I am here. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the partnership. And I just want to introduce briefly myself, and then we'll jump into the Word. So my name is Theo, as Dave um, said. My family is up on the screen. My wife, Merle, from Estonia, and my two boys, Samuel, to the right, and Robert to the left. And um, yes, I uh, grew up in Romania, came to the United States for six years, studied here at Moody and then Trinity, worked with Pastor Dave um, at Arlington Heights Evangelical Free Church, and we did some mission trips to Romania together. And then when I was doing a training in Estonia, I met this girl that became my wife, and I've lived in Estonia for the last 11 years. And in Estonia, I'm a part of a local church. I'm a, an elder in my local church, help with teaching and training of the leaders. And I work with an organization called M4 Europe. And M4 Europe is an organization that started in Norway, planting churches in Norway, training church planters and the team to plant churches. And now it has spread over the last 11 years to 16 countries. And Moldova is the next one on the list. And it's probably going to join next year. So... What we have seen has been beyond our expectations. We did not plan for this. We were not prepared for this. But this is what God did, and we tried to keep up with what God has been doing. Just what uh, I want to sh sh uh, share with you that in, in, among these 16 countries are both Russia and Ukraine. We work with both Russian believers, and we work with Ukrainian believers. And up on the screen you see the leader of Russia, to the right, up there, you don't see him very well, Yosif Makarenko, and Pasha, the leader in Ukraine, down at the bottom. And Ovind is the one who started, the Norwegian who started M4 Europe. And we were all in a call together. What was so beautiful was to see the Russian leader pray for the Ukrainian leader, and the Ukrainian leader pray for the Russian leader. And it shows that the kingdom of God goes beyond what's happening in the world. And we are all one family. And we work for the same Lord and Savior, Jesus. So um, we, we are in both of these countries working and continuing to help the believers there plant churches. Leaders to plant churches that will bring glory to God and have a real impact wherever they're planted. And just this is the last slide about the, the, the ministry we're part of. Um, so 11 years in no, 16 nations, more than 260 church Churches have been planted out M4. Uh, not everybody who started M4 finished, and, and not every church is around, but 85%, we've done a research just to make sure how, it's an 85% success rate. So 85% of the churches that have gone through the process are still in existence today. And there are over 260 churches in existence today across Europe in these countries. Um, and we have a dream. We have a dream. <laughs> that by 2025, M4 will be in 20 nations, 2,000 leaders will be trained through what we call M4 Ready, our recruitment process, trained so that they could be part of the training, church planting training, so they could come together as a team and launch churches across the continent. And we have a, we have a dream that we want to see one church planted every day in Europe. That's our dream. And you may say, that's kind of a crazy dream. Uh, but we have an inspiration for that dream. 
Uh, our inspiration uh, for that dream is a verse in Acts. You don't have it on the screen, but there's, there's a verse in Acts, and it's Acts chapter 16, verse 5. I will read it to you. If you want to open it, you can open it yourself. Acts 16, verse 5 says this. So the book of Acts chapter 16, reading just one verse, verse 5. It says, Luke says this. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I've always read that verse meaning that new believers were added daily to the churches in the first century of Christianity. That's how I read it. But that's not what the text is saying. The text says the churches grew daily in numbers, meaning every day in the first century of Christianity, every day there was, one, there was at least one church being planted. Churches were being started every day. The churches grew in numbers. They multiplied. So, so we got that dream. We thought, could we see that in Europe? Could we see a church planted every day somewhere in Europe through M4 process? That's what we're working towards. And next year, we're going to have 100 church plant, planting teams across the 16 countries in training to plant churches in Europe. That's where we're going. And I am so happy I get a front seat on what God is doing in regards to church planting in Europe. And you are part of that. And I'm so thankful that Pastor Dave and I reconnected, and as I was sharing what we're doing, he said, hey, we want to get behind this, and we want to be partners, and not just to give financially, but to be partners, to visit, to help in other ways as well. So I'm glad you're going to Romania. Some of you are. So that's briefly about um, me, my family, and the ministry we're part of. Now, I want to switch gears, and I want to focus on the message today. And I think it is a timely message because if you look, I don't know how much you look at the church in America and the leaders in America. I try to learn from everybody and I follow different people and I try to learn from different leaders. And within the last decade, we have seen the fall of some amazingly gifted leaders with impact, whose ministries impacted millions of people literally across the world. And we have seen them fall so greatly. One after the other. I would read the news and I would find about yet another leader from whom I, I have learned a lot, whose ministry has impacted my life, fall again, again and again, seeing the news. And we should never confuse giftedness with godliness. They're not the same. We should never confuse competency with character. They're not the same. Character is the foundation upon which you, we build everything in our lives. And if that foundation is cracked, we're going to crash. Competency, giftedness will only carry you as far as your character can support you. When that no longer supports you, you'll crash. And that's what we have seen. Sadly, that's what we've said, we have seen. So, so the question is, how? if we go back to the beginning, how did humanity fall? How did the fall happen? And what can we learn from that today? And we are going to look at a text that if you have grown up in church, you have read it multiple times. Probably you have heard sermons on it many times. Very familiar text. But my prayer is that you're going to look at this text and you're going to see something maybe that you've never seen before. Old Testament narrative, I have been 
uh, always drawn to it. And we're going to look at a text in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go through a text looking at how humanity fell and what we can learn from that. The context for the text is this. God creates a perfect world. He creates the lights, the vegetation, the animals, the plants, the flowers, everything beautiful. And he creates this garden, Garden of Eden, in which he places the first humans, Adam and Eve. A perfect world. Humans living in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with each other, and in perfect relationship with God's creation. Now imagine those of you who are married to have a perfect relationship with your spouse. None of us do. Adam and Eve had. In that perfect environment, Satan is stepping in, trying to pervert God's creation. And that's where we pick up in verse 1, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, the serpent is the enemy. It's Satan. And he comes to the woman and starts talking to her. A few things that I want us to observe. He said, did God really say? He's, he's trying to question. But more than that, you have heard that. He's trying to question what God had said. But first of all, God did not say. God did not say. Did God really say? No, God did not say. God commanded. We're going to look in chapter 2 in a minute. God did not say it was a command. And the text is very clear. But, but Satan minimizes the weight of God's command and puts a question mark in the woman's mind, in Eve's mind. Did God really say? He didn't say. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No. Actually, God commanded the opposite. Let's take a look in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded, commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat. So you're free to eat from any tree. What does Satan says? Did God say you must not eat from any tree? No. Actually, God commanded the opposite. You are free to eat from any tree. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Satan minimizes the weight of God's command and puts a question mark in Eve's mind. And we, we see here that the, the Lord commanded the man. That's a detail we'll come back to. So, so he makes, Satan makes God seem so restrictive. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? See, he distorts the word of God. He makes Eve question God's word, and he minimizes the weight of God's command. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. So she knows this command. Either God had also revealed to her, we don't know that from the text, or she found this out from Adam, her husband. But she knows, she knows. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the, from, from the, trees in the garden. But God did say, well, God didn't say. God commanded. So Eve is falling into the same, in the same way that Satan speaks. God, did God say? No, God, God was, was very firm in his command. God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. God, we don't, we're not told that God said not to touch it. It could be that she's adding to the command, making, feel, making it seem like, more restrictive than what God 
had said. So she's falling in the same, in the same trap that Satan is laying ahead of her. And she says, or you will die. God said it differently. God said that the day you will eat from it, you will surely die. It's not, you must not touch it or you will die. God, God was much more firm. You will certainly die the moment you eat from this tree. And look at Satan's response. Satan is, has the same, the same weight with which God has spoken, but in the opposite direction. The Satan says, you will not certainly die. God said you will surely die or you will certainly die. The woman is a little bit confused, minimizes the command. It doesn't have the same weight that, with which God had, had, had spoken and had commanded. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. First thing I want us to observe, Satan makes Eve doubts God, doubt God's word and he twists God's word. Basically saying, God, your word is not true. What you're saying is not true. That's his message to the woman. And here's the thing. I think that's the same way Satan comes to us. It's the same way he twists God's word. He makes us wonder. He makes us maybe sometimes minimize what God had said and what God had commanded. Let's look just at a few of the ways Satan nowadays, through the culture, twists God's word and makes us doubt God's word. First, first lie. Satan says, follow your heart. I mean, how many times in our, in our culture and in your culture, you hear, you just have to follow your heart. You, your heart will lead you on the right path. You have to follow your heart. It was five years ago, I got a call from one of the elders in our church saying, my wife is with another man. I just found out. And he was devastated. And um, she said she doesn't feel loved in this relationship. And she said she wants to follow her heart. She wants to go on the path where her heart is leading. And she feels like her heart is leading her to another man. They had three kids. And we just, she was one of the last people I would have imagined she would do something like this. One of the strongest couples in our church, involved in ministry, youth ministry for more than a decade, was now following her heart. And we met with the elders. We met with her. We met with them. And the, her husband said, I'm willing to do anything to work on this relationship, to make it work. But just please come back. I forgive you. I just want to work on this. A great guy. Not perfect, but great guy. She said, I don't feel loved, and I feel loved in this other relationship. She left the family and followed her heart. Even the people we are, I mean, and we look at the leaders that have fallen, amazing leaders. This can happen to all of us the moment we twist God's word, the moment we doubt what God has commanded and follow our heart. Because the word of God says what? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? But so often we are delivered through the culture this lie. Follow your heart. Your heart will lead you on the right path. But Jesus says, follow me. That's the first lie. We're going to look at a couple more. Believe in yourself. I live in a country, Estonia, which is one of the most atheistic countries in the world, along with Czech Republic. This, when we talk with people about God, this is the comment that comes up the most. Oh, do you believe in God? Do you, what do you think about God? Oh, uh, no, I believe in myself. I believe in myself. And the culture, and Satan through the culture, delivers us this lie. You've got to believe in you. 
You've got to believe in what you can do. But the Word of God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. He is the rock. He is the one we should rely on. He is the one we should lean on, not believe in yourself. Last lie. Satan says God will not give you more than what you can carry. And many, I think many Christians believe that. God will not give us more than we can, what we can carry. You know, two and a half years ago, at the onset of corona, a month after corona was spreading everywhere, our son got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And it, shake, it shook us like nothing else had shaken us before. We were trying to keep our son to not go into coma because the blood sugar would go too low and to not have his organs affected because the blood sugar would go too high. I never knew the complexity of type 1 diabetes. Day and night, 24-7, 7 out of 7, monitoring this his blood sugar, making sure that he is staying alive. It was stressful. It was difficult. It was more than we could, ha could, could have handled. And God gave it to us. Because in that moment, we realized we cannot handle it. We need to depend on God for it. God will give you more than what you can carry, more than what you can handle, so that you can depend on Him. He will give us more than what we can handle on our own so that we lean on Him and we draw our strength from Him. This is a picture of my son in the hospital with my wife, and it was, my wife saying, I don't know how we get through this. My wife was crying day and night. I was home, and at the middle of the night, on the phone with my son, trying to convince him to let the nurses draw blood for him for one hour in the middle of the night. That was stressful. That was difficult. But we leaned on God and the community of God to help us through it. And by God's grace, He's with us. He's given us strength, and we keep moving forward. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Lean on me, lean on my grace, for I support you, I am with you. God will give us more than what we can handle. So these are just a few. There are others, but these are a few common lies, a few common ways that Satan distorts God's word and, and fools even the people we would have never thought they would get fooled. And here's the thing. Let's all be careful. The moment we start doubting God's word, the moment we start twisting God's word is the moment we can fall. Paul says, whoever's standing, I'm paraphrasing, whoever's standing, make sure that they don't fall. So first thing, that's what Satan does. That's what Satan did with Eve, made her question God's word and made and twisted God's word. And Eve entered into that play, into that, temp, into that trap, I should call it. First thing, and I want to notice one, uh, another, one, one more thing as we go through the text. You will not certainly die, the serpent said, said the exact opposite of God with the same weight. You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's, he's tempting her with the same te temptation he, has been, he had been tempted. He wanted to be like God. Satan wanted to be like God. And he says, God doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil, deciding what is good and evil for yourselves. God doesn't want something that's good for you. 
what happens we know in Genesis 3 chapter uh, verse 6 when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well in this text everything happens in this verse everything happens so quickly she saw she took she ate she gave everything happens very fast and her husband is there with her Adam's uh, passivity allows for Eve's fall he doesn't say anything and he's the one who received the command from God so they fall they fall into the temptation and they eat from the the fruit of the tree that God said God didn't say God commanded them not to eat from second thing this is what Satan makes Satan makes Eve doubt God's goodness what he's actually saying is God is not really good God doesn't want what's best for you does that, God doesn't want what's good for you so not only he twists God's word he makes her doubt God's word that's first second he makes her question God's goodness God you're not good and she believes Satan she believes that God's not good that's why she takes from the tree from the fruit of the tree I think in the same way Satan comes to us makes making us doubt that God is good there are moments in our lives maybe we go through difficult situations and we start wondering is God that good when he allows me to go through something like this that's not really good you know when we were going through the diabetes and we got the diagnosis and we were just trying to survive there were pastors who came to us and said I can't believe God I can't believe God allowed you to go through something like this I can't believe you, I mean, you are serving God, Theo. You're traveling all over Europe, encouraging church planters. You're serving locally. Why would, how could God allow something like this to happen to you? But you see, in that question, that question hides a very dangerous assumption. And the assumption is this. Because you serve God, God owes you a life without suffering. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe you anything. Anything and everything above grave is grace. You and I deserve to die, completely separated from God forever. We get grace. We get so much. So to be anchored in the truth matters so much when you're going through difficult situations. You know, we never asked why, why it happened. However, Samuel asked that question. He would say, Daddy, why do I have to have diabetes? Why do I have to always, all these needles go into my body, all this suffering? Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to go through that? And we did our best trying to explain to him. Fast forward a few months into this. I get a call from the teachers, one of the teachers in the kindergarten, and the teacher said, um, Theo, I don't understand when someone talks about having type 1 diabetes, he says that he has diabetes because of Adam and Eve. And I don't understand what he means by that. She's not a Christian. So I said, Margit, let me give you the context for his answer. And I gave her exactly what I've been sharing with you this morning. God creates a perfect world, but humanity chose their own ways. And because of it, suffering is part of our world. And we don't get skipped from it. We go through it. And that's, that's the big why this is happening. We never asked that question. For us, it was clear. At the same time, this was clear and we we're confident in God and remain anchored in God. And at the same time, it was the hardest thing we had to go through. It was so difficult. Both of them coexisted together. 
We knew God is good. We, we, we knew God is faithful. And God has sustained us. But w- there are moments when Satan comes and says, hey, I'm still single. Is God really good? Hey, I have this diagnosis. God, I don't know, how can God be good and me, I struggle with this. But if we remember that God doesn't owe us anything, but God gives us so much grace, we are back in the truth. It's so important to know what is the Word of God saying and to not fall in the same temptation that Eve fell in, that we would not go in the same direction. I'm watching the time. We could stay in this text longer. I just want to go towards the end. So, the eyes of both of them were opened, Adam and Eve, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They covered themselves with leaves. They covered themselves with something, but only the presence of God could cover them. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. First behavior that's new, they hide. But the Lord, God called to the man, where are you? By the way, the question is not for God. The question is for Adam and Eve, and the question is for us that we would realize. God knows what has happened, but they but he wants the man and woman to realize what had happened. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear, shame, hiding, part of the behavior of humans after the fall. And he said, who told you that you were naked? In other words, who have you been talking to? Who told you that you are insignificant? Who told you that you are not worthy of love? Who told you that you are lonely? Who have you been talking to? God knows somebody else started to influence them and has led them on the pathway to destruction. Who told you that you were naked? And he said, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God brings back the seriousness, the weight with which he's spoken to the men and women. I commanded you not to eat from that tree. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Blaming starts happening. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They start blaming another behavior that starts as a result of the fall. Blaming. We start blaming each other. And God has no conversation with the serpent, but curses him because God doesn't have a relationship with the serpent. So the, the conversation stops with the man and the woman. There's so much we can learn from this text. The two things that Satan tempts Eve with, he says, God, your word is not true. God, you're not good, are the same two things that Satan comes to us with, making us question God, God's word and God's goodness. We know the story. Genesis ends with Genesis 3. God makes coverings for them. The blood of an animal is shed so that the men and women are covered. But 2,000 years, not 2,000, thousands of years later, thousands of years later, another man in a different garden was going to face temptation from the same enemy. But this time, this man crushes the enemy's head, defeats the enemy forever, defeats sin, Satan, death, on the cross forever. Jesus wins the battle for all of us. And there is a, in Genesis 3, there's, a, there's hope because God says your seed will crush 
his head and he will crush your heel. He will strike your heel. Jesus lives a life that none of us could live, a perfect life. And then he dies the death that all of us deserved to die so that he can once again bridge and make, make us come into a close relationship with God, make us confident that God, God's word is true. And God is good. He shows the goodness of God in what he suffered for all of us. And then he's raised up to life. He's alive to give us that hope that is a certain hope. It's not wishful thinking. We are certain that the one who came back to life, Jesus, is our Savior, is our Lord, is the one we love, is the one we follow. And I want us to leave from here being certain of God's word knowing what God commanded, knowing that God is good because of what he had done for us in Jesus. So, Father God, I thank you. I thank you for the way you showed us your love. I thank you for the way you paved, you paved the way for us to have a relationship with your Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that in the garden you did not give in to the temptation of the enemy, but you defeated the enemy once and for all. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you are good. And Lord, help us all. If anybody here is doubting any of these, if Satan is working towards making us doubt your word, doubt your goodness, I pray that we be reminded and we be anchored in what's true. And we would move forward confident in what you say, in what you command to us, and confident that you are good. Regardless of what happens, you are good. You are God, and we love you because you first loved us. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.